We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by former CIA officer and host of Everyday Espionage, Andrew Bustamante. And we have a fascinating discussion about how you can use certain CIA skills in your daily life. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. It was a very interesting chat Andrew and I had, and uh, I think it makes for a really, really cool episode. So sit back and enjoy. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel. I've been threatening it for a while, and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple Podcasts in particular love reviews and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Well, Andrew, for the benefit of listeners, can you sort of just tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Andrew Bustamante. I am a, a former CIA covert intelligence officer, and I left the CIA in 2014 with my wife, who was also CIA. We met and married undercover, uh, and we went on to start our own business called Everyday Spy. Uh, EverydaySpy.com is our homepage. And now we teach everyday people how to use spy skills to gain an unfair advantage in all aspects of life. Yeah. So can you, are you able to tell us a bit about sort of your life in the agency? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously there's a lot of it that remains compartmentalized and classified, but it's surprising how much information we're allowed to talk about. So one of the things I've been around secrets my whole life, I went, I went to the Air Force Academy, which is a military school, a military university here in the US. And when I left, I was granted a secret clearance. And then I went on to get my top secret clearance and work with nuclear weapons and work with, uh, with experimental aircraft. And what is interesting to me is secrets, what I learned very early on in my career, is that secrets are really not interesting 
Secrets are, they're valuable, but they're not actually sexy. They're not entertaining and they're not important, right? Knowing the exact uh, pressure manifold for, you know, a centrifuge that's being used to create uranium, that number is not interesting. But what's interesting is the idea that there's information that the average person isn't allowed to have. That's what drives our obsession with secrets. And, uh, and, and CIA is all about secrets. It's all about the information that we're collecting, that field officers collect, that my wife was a targeter, so she would find the people who have the secrets. She would use secrets to find secrets, if you will. And, and then our job as a tandem couple, as a team, was to find the people who had secrets and then get them to give their secrets away, get them to sell them or trade them or we would steal them, whatever it was. And always those secrets had to have some impact for keeping Americans safe. We weren't just stealing secrets to steal secrets or to give some company a corporate edge. It was for national security reasons. So uh, the, the content of those secrets, which can never be shared, is actually really boring. <laughs> but it's, set, it's so sexy to think about the skills and the tactics that you use to get those secrets. And what's fascinating is those skills and tactics are not secret themselves. Those are not classified. So that's, that's, we've built a business on sharing those, those tactics and, and skills with people. I mean, I've always been deeply fascinated about how, how one identifies a target and how one goes about recruiting them. I don't know if there's anything you can sort of say to any of that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's talk specifically about human intelligence, mm. right? Human targets. Mm. So everybody has secrets, whether they're cheating on their spouse or their secret recipe for making the perfect chocolate chip cookie, everybody has secrets. But not every secret has value on a national security level, right? So if you consider 100% of the population of the UK or 100% of the population of the US, only about 15 or 20% have secrets that could that could turn the tide of world power, right? So that's immediately 80% of the people, 80 to 85% of the people, they don't even matter. Their secrets don't matter. This is one of the things that I always laugh at with conspiracy theory and with movies. Yeah. Nobody cares who's cheating on your taxes. Nobody cares if you're, if you're skimming a little bit of extra money out of the uh, profits. People just don't care about that. That doesn't impact the world. That doesn't impact hundreds of lives. That impacts a few dozen lives at most. So when you find that 15 or 20% that have access to those secrets, well, then you have to consider that only about 20% of that 20% will actually talk about their secrets. The other 80% is very responsible, very safe, very secure, very professional, and there is nothing you can say to get them to violate their accountability with what they're protecting. So it's a very, very small subset of people, people that have to have what's known in our space as a vulnerability. Oftentimes those vulnerabilities are emotional or mental, but they can also be you know, physical, tangible vulnerabilities. Somebody who would never give a secret away ever on Monday, if they find out that their daughter is dying of cancer on Tuesday, that person might be willing to trade secrets in exchange for medical help of the, for their daughter on Wednesday right? Life changes. And when life changes, it happens very quickly. So, uh, so a lot of times what, to, this is a very long way of answering your question, Chris, but when you're finding a target, you need to find someone who has the information you're looking for. Mm. And then they also need to be someone who has the vulnerability or a, a, a potential vulnerability mm. that you can exploit. 
Only after you put those two pieces together is it worth putting the effort of having an actual intelligence officer go after them. If they don't have both of those pieces, there's no operation that's going to be successful. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. You got a really interesting ebook, and in there you mentioned that the idea of espionage is misunderstood, and there are certain skills that can be used sort of in everyday life. So, could you could you just sort of talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. So people people often think that the movies are accurate when it comes mm. to spying. Mm. That it's all about uh, fancy costumes and disguises and being under deep cover all the time, you know, and pretending that you're a millionaire, right? Living in the open, hiding in plain sight. This is all, it's not, that's not really what it is at all. There are always individual operations where that's useful, but by and large, most operations require you to be forgettable. They require you to be somebody that no one would notice. Instead of being a millionaire, uh, you might live just above the poverty line to prove that you are in whatever cover capacity, cover capacity that you claim to be in. None of that makes for good Hollywood movies or makes for good television, right? But that's that makes for a forgettable person, someone who's easy to trust, someone who you would never suspect of being a spy. And that's really the more important part of espionage. So people misunderstand espionage and they misunderstand that we we do hide in plain sight by being the kind of person you forget. And then the second part of that is the most dangerous part of espionage isn't actually like the speedboat where you're shooting guns off both sides like James Bond, you know, in Italy. That's not the dangerous part. The most dangerous part is all the everyday tasks, all the silly mundane stuff where you have to remember that you're in a different name, in a different country, hiding your real intentions and your real identity. So now all of a sudden... Going to the urgent care because your child has a fever, the the risk of that becomes so much greater. Walking down the street and being mugged from behind, if you get mugged, you can't just go to the police station and say that they stole your wallet. All of a sudden, the, the stakes become so much higher because you only have one fake ID. That fake ID is in your wallet. If that fake ID is stolen, you can't just go knock on a door. You can't go ask someone to... You can't go to a normal, a regular government office and have it reissued. You have to go all the way back to CIA headquarters and have the alias documentation team build a completely new alias for you. So, you know, everyday life becomes so much more dangerous, whether it's a car accident or whether it's, you know, a, a, a tooth that chips. You can't, it's this, it's so much more complicated. So that's where... That's where Everyday Spy uses those skills that we were taught to keep ourselves safe, to keep ourselves in control of everyday life. We just apply those now, even though we're no longer undercover. Yeah, yeah. So your organization, Everyday Spy, what was sort of the impetus and sort of philosophy behind starting it? So when you leave CIA and when you leave MI6 for all of our UK listeners, when you leave ACES for our Australian listeners or Mossad, um, CSIS, if you leave any special intelligence service, they don't. They don't back you up. There's, it's like leaving the mafia. They don't help you leave. You just, you're undercover on one day and then you resign. And the next day, you're still a classified asset of the government until they tell you that it's safe to talk about what you did. The same thing happened to my wife and I. We left CIA and we were still technically classified as undercover resources. We couldn't tell anybody that we came from CIA. We still had whatever cover identity we previously had, only now we were resigned from Mm -hmm. that cover identity. (laughs) Um, And as a result of that, you have all of the restrictions of government classification. So somebody else was writing our resume 
and that made our resume look like atrocious. We didn't have any of the skills that we claimed to have because we were undercover CIA operatives. We were not, you know, whatever, printer repairmen or car salesmen or whatever our cover might have been. So now we're trying to find a job with a resume that somebody else wrote that's got all sorts of errors and mistakes in it. And we don't have any of the actual skills that are in that resume. So for about six months, we went without a job. We were former undercover officers that were without a job Yeah, in 2014. Fair. Yeah, with a one-year-old child, it was a scary time trying to re- reinvent ourselves. Um, and then one day in like the pits of desperation, I kind of had an epiphany in the shower where I realized that I had always used the skills that CIA taught me so that I could infiltrate organizations and infiltrate governments and infiltrate all these different places by lying about my skills and lying about my background. I was skilled at lying. So then I just wondered, what if I just lie my way into a job? Would that work? And it did. So that's exactly what happened. I I lied my way into a very nice uh, Fortune 100 company. I did a good job, so I didn't have any of the skills I said I had, but I was able to learn those skills fast enough and work hard enough and succeed enough that I became very well-respected in that organization. And then two years later, when CIA wrote me an email and said I was allowed to say I was from CIA, then I went to the I went to my boss and apologized for lying to him for two years. <laughs> what was that reaction? <laughs> and told him my background. And he just, yeah. he just looked at me and he said, please don't ever... Don't ever tell anybody this again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless. (laughs) Yeah. And my wife essentially did the exact same thing. But what ended up happening was we learned that those skills worked. We learned that what we had learned at CIA still had, had value and could still be applicable in the everyday world and give people an advantage, give people an opportunity that they didn't previously have. We were, nobody was giving us an opportunity. We had to go out and make the opportunity happen using the spy skills we were given. Mm, mm. Once that worked, all we did was just keep testing that over and over again. And over and over, it would work. It would work buying a car. It would work when we bought a house. It would work negotiating for a free cup of coffee. It would work at work. It would work negotiating business deals. It would work all the time in project management and, and you name it. And it just became so consistent for us that we were confident that we could make a business out of it. And teach it to others. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So I would love to talk to you about sort of how you can use these everyday espionage techniques in our daily lives. So you've got an ebook, um, and you talk about how every operation sort of starts with a map and a compass. And uh, for a spy, there are only two important things, and that's where you are on the map and where you want to be. So uh, can you talk to us a bit about this? Yeah. So one of the one of the places that we launched our business was in with this ebook, an ebook called Everyday Espionage: Winning the Workplace. And all I do in the ebook is walk people through the same process I used to get that corporate job and then to grow in that corporate job and to go from being, you know, essentially unemployed to earning more than $150,000 a year in just a matter of a few years. So we all, every mission starts, like, like you just said, with a compass and a map. And what happens is the everyday person starts to become very focused on the end point of the map. Right. If you're trying to get from L.A. to New York, people become very focused on I'm trying to get to New York. I'm trying to get to New York. And every time you judge your success, you're always basing your success on how far am I from New York? And that's why people get they get frustrated and they get discouraged because 
A day goes by and you only covered 20 miles. Another day goes by and you only covered 10 miles. And New York just seems so far away. So what we're taught to do is we're taught to look at where we started, not where we're going. Because every day, if you compare how much, how further you are from LA, today, you're 20 miles further from LA. Tomorrow, you're 10 miles further from LA. The next day, you might be 30 miles further from LA. And now you see progress in a completely different perspective because you're seeing how you're transferring, you're, you're transiting away from where you started on your way to where you're going. And that allows you to take the bumps and the turns in the road a little bit easier because you're not focused on where you're going. You're focused on where you're coming from and you're just trying to make progress in, in a positive, productive direction. In the ebook, we lay those four directions out. We call them the four different skills, the four C's that we're all taught in espionage. Yeah. And those four C's that we're taught are called consideration, collaboration, consistency, and control. And when you learn what the meaning of those four C's are, consideration, collaboration, consistency, and control, then that allows you to craft an operation out of your everyday workplace, out of your job, out of your career, and use those four skills to get ahead. Not not necessarily getting closer to New York, but always getting further from LA. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Now, you break these four C's down in your book into sort of different compass headings. And uh, I was wondering if you'd be happy to sort of talk to us about those sort of different compass headings that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's funny because, you know, a compass has 360 degrees. And mm. and, and a, uh, a spy operation always has the primary objective, but we have secondary and tertiary and, you know, fourth and fifth objectives as well. So we lose track of the fact that not everybody shares the same goal. Right. Mm, so, mm. so some people are hell bent on becoming the best of the best and they want to become the CEO of their company. They want to be the director of their department and they're, that's what they're going to do. There's lots of people who have no interest in becoming the director of their department, who have no interest in even being a leadership role at all. But maybe they want to be very, very good, the most trusted, the most knowledgeable, the most reliable analyst or engineer or graphics designer, right? So they, they have a hard time because all of the content, all of the teachings that are out there are teaching people leadership. Here's how you get to the top of the, the mountain. Here's how you beat everybody else. There's plenty of folks who don't want to be at the top of the mountain. They just want to be, they want to have job security and job stability and be respected for their, their skills and their knowledge. So what I lay out with those four cardinal directions that we talk about in my ebook, Winning the Workplace, is that we, we acknowledge that each of the four types of people, there's the type of person who wants to become the top, there's the person who wants to be a respected expert, there's the person who wants to be what we call like a power broker or a, a people connector, a super connector. That's your ultimate networker. And then you've got the person who's already in a position of leadership who has to lead other people, right? Those are four different objectives, four different types of people all in the same workplace. Well, we've got spy skills. Those four C's apply to all four of those different types of persons, all four of those different professional ambitions. And then we lay out exactly how you use consideration or collaboration or consistency or control to get ahead in the specific area that you're trying to master in your career or in your workplace. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. So um, 
Like with everything, espionage or spy skills can be used for both good and bad. And uh, we live in a world of with a lot of sort of deception and increasing fraud. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about some CIA skills that we can use to sort of beat people who are lying to us and uh, trying to con us and how to spot a, a sham, you know, from uh, from an email or from somebody in front of you. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very fair question. So uh, it's a question that often comes up for me, too. I, I'm not a big fan of all of the content that YouTube the videos, the books that are trying to teach people how to detect a lie by watching physical mannerisms. That's not what we're taught in the field. That's not actually what professionals use in an undercover capacity. Interrogators might use that in an interrogation room because they can control all aspects of the experience. They can control the temperature. They can control the witness and how much time the witness has been sleeping, what they've been eating, right? There's, they have intense control over the environment. In, in everyday life, you and I don't have any control over the car salesman or the, you know, the phone telesales person that's, that's talking to us and lying to us. We can't turn up the heat or change the temperature or, you know, or add a smell to the room that makes them nauseous. We don't have that kind of control. So we have to use different skills. So I am totally opposed to anybody who's out there trying to tell us that, you know, you can read someone's eye movements or blink rates, or you can watch whether or not their hands are palm forward or palm backwards. That's just useless for everyday people. But what you can use is a very simple thing that we all already use called questions. So questions are a really powerful tool that are that gets very little praise. You're an interviewer, Chris. So in this conversation, you're in total control of the conversation because you're the one asking the questions. Wherever you want this conversation to go, you ask a question. Generally, in Western society, we see questions as something that makes us weak. We don't want to be the one that asks the question in class. We don't want to be the one that asks the question at an office meeting because we don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about. We think questions make us look weak. In fact, questions are what make you take control of a conversation. So if someone is trying to sell you a car and they're insisting that you pay a certain price, the fastest way that you can determine whether they're lying to you or not is by asking them questions. So one question that's really easy to ask is something called a a feeling question, because most of us ask fact-based questions. So most of us ask, you know, why is the car so expensive? What makes the car worth that amount, right? Instead, if you ask a feeling question, what happens is you catch a liar stumbling, Because if there's anything that most people can answer quickly, it's their true feelings, right? How are you feeling today, Chris? You can answer that quickly without without hesitation. So when someone's trying to tell you, oh, this car is $35,000 and we can't negotiate, right? Then you ask them, how did you feel the last time someone walked away from the parking lot not buying a car, Mm. (laughs) right? How did you feel the last time that price prevented someone from making a sale for you? They have the answer right away. They know the answer, but they get caught up in the fact that they're lying. They know that they can negotiate. They know they can come down on the price. And they know that the previous person who bought that car did negotiate a lower price. Mm. So then they they ponder, they stall. You can see it in their face. They're, they get furrowed and confused because they want to tell you the truth, but they're holding it back because they're lying. Once you see that pause, you know you're dealing with someone who's lying to you. That's way more reliable 
than measuring blink rate or determining if they look up to the left or up to the right mm. or down at their shoes. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a really good technique. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, how would one? How would one then? Like with like online fraud, are there any sort of techniques that we could use? I mean, some of them just really are common sense, I think. But uh, like if if a Nigerian prince is offering you two billion pounds or something, you probably might want to think twice about it. But um, are there any sort of like online techniques that we can use to kind of spot these things? Yeah. So what's interesting is we have to remember that when it comes to anything that comes through your computer screen, there's there's tools, there's technical tools that that are more advanced than anything the average person understands. So you have to keep in mind that there's all sorts of technical tools that give whoever's on the other side of that email or on the other side of that message, it gives them an advantage that you don't have. And then secondly, we have to understand that there's a level of anonymity. And inside anonymity, people take increased risk. So when you're sitting across from somebody talking to them face to face, there's very little room for anonymity. There's also very little room for them to have some set of skills or technical abilities that you don't have. So we're used to dealing with people face-to-face, and that's why you hear people say, hey, I can read that person, or they give me a good feeling in my gut, right? I trust them. They seem like a reliable person. You can't let your habits of dealing human-to-human extend to your habits dealing human to computer because the person on the other end of that message may not even be a real person. They may just be a robot. So the best thing to do is is to second guess everything. Everything that comes across your screen, doubt it. Even if it has somebody's name on it, even if it's coming from the company name that you think it's coming from, the best thing is to doubt it immediately. If it seems like it's too good to be true, then it probably is, of course, But you can always try to verify. So one of my favorite things to do is whenever I get those spammy messages, I'll I'll experiment with like the Nigerian prince, for example. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) I experiment with that person all the time. So uh, let's say I have email A, whatever that email address is, Andy, Andy at gmail.com. Andy at gmail.com will get a message from my Nigerian prince saying that he's going to pay me $2 million if I just... Uh, act as this cutout for him and this fortune that his grandma's trying to give him. Andy at gmail.com gets the email address or gets the email, but Andy at gmail doesn't respond. Instead, I'll open a second email account called Adam. Adam at gmail.com. I'll copy the same email out of my Andy account and respond using my Adam account. When I respond from my Adam account, it takes me right into the same flow of, oh, thank you so much for responding. And I'm so happy that you're going to help me. Well, what that tells me is that the person on the other end isn't actually trying to reach me at all. Yeah, yeah. They're just trying to reach someone who responds. That's That's a surefire sign that it's a robot. Two different emails, I'm responding with a completely new email address, a totally fake, what we call throwaway email address, and now it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? They're just looking for someone to respond. So that's one technique that I'll use that is, anybody can use that if they want to. And then a second technique is to check the actual email address that it's coming from. And if it's not a genuine email address, like if you see a series of numbers or garbled letters, uh, or if you see everything after the at symbol, We call that the domain, everything after the at symbol. If the domain is not a reliable domain, like a domain that you can you can do a Google search separately. So if it says something like e.l. you know, Nigeria.eu, that's not a reliable domain. So you can you can tell for sure that you shouldn't trust 
that email because that email is coming from an unreliable domain. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've seen that, especially like banking ones, because usually if it's from your bank, it will say, you know, at and then bank name, but usually it's bank name plus letters, numbers and something else. And exactly. Like, yeah, it's definitely not true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've had this too, like you get cold calls, somebody pretending to be from your bank saying there's fraud. There's another classic one that happens a lot. And um, and I always just say, well, look, I'm going to call you back on the number I know. Exactly. And then nine yep. times out of 10, it wasn't real. So, or the weirdest one was when it was one real one and a fake one in the same day. That was confusing. But there we go. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. It happens. <laughs> yeah. So you got all of these. All of these scammers are counting on you mm. to make a mistake. They're using yeah. human nature against you. So they're just they're using the law of averages to send ten thousand people the same message on the same day, in the hopes that one or two of them will take action because they're having a hard day or they're, you know, they're having a weakness that day, something. They're vulnerable that day. Just like we were talking about earlier. You know, you need someone with access and with a vulnerability if you're going to run a spy operation against them. Well, what you've got with scammers is scammers don't have the professional approach that we have in espionage. So they don't know if you have the access or the vulnerability. So instead, they just send it to everybody and hope that out of every 10,000, one or two will have both the vulnerability and the access they need to run a successful scam. Yeah, yeah, that's all they need, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I suppose they've probably got targets like every other like salesperson, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it it boils down to math at a certain at a certain uh, size. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, one other skill an intelligence officer needs is the ability to learn languages. And this is like one of my weak points. And uh, I've always been fascinated. Are there any like really cool CIA tools and stuff where you can like learn languages quite easily or, or quickly? Yeah, there are. So there's two, two points to this question. So mm. first, Hollywood makes it look like you need to speak a lot of languages. That's not true. In fact, most elite intelligence services do not want you to speak any language fluently. It doesn't make any sense. It, it, if you are a Caucasian U, uh, UK citizen and you speak absolutely perfect, fluent Dutch, that just makes you really suspicious. <laughs> Right? So it made me look like a drug runner or something. <laughs> yeah, like why do you have such perfect Dutch? You've got to tell me the specific backstory that led mm. to you having such a masterful, you know, accent perfect Dutch. Instead, they want you to go and, and be in Amsterdam and have like stumbling Dutch, like just enough that you can actually get by. Right? So that's that's the truth behind most intelligence language capability. Whether you're in Brazil speaking Portuguese or whether you're in Morocco speaking Arabic. They don't want you to be fluent. They want you to have just enough that it's very clear you are not fluent in that language. So with that in mind, the way that they teach us to, to learn foreign languages isn't by mastering one language for years. Instead, they have us constantly learning new languages using a technique that's based around high-frequency use words. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. But high-frequency use words, um, if you have, you know, the, I think the English language has about 35,000 words. Of those 35,000 words, only about 7,000 are used every day. So if you can just learn those 7,000 words that are used every day, you don't have to learn the rest of the 35 or the rest of the 23,000 words, right? Mm, mm. That's the that's the real trick to how spies learn a language. If you're only trying to learn 7,000 words, you can learn that in about six months. If you're trying to master a lexicon of 35,000 words, that takes decades. 
So you may not be as far off from learning a language as you think, Chris. You yeah, just need yeah. a few thousand words. And I suppose, is the goal then, it's just so you can have a conversation with a local, isn't it? Yeah, it, exactly. The goal is for you to have a conversation with somebody that's just an everyday conversation about football or about beer or about coffee so that you can determine whether or not they speak English so that you can determine whether or not they have a vulnerability and mm. whether or not they have access. Because here's the thing, if you find someone, if you find a a nuclear engineer from North Korea who's like the sexiest, most hardest to reach target in the world, if they speak just enough Korean or if you speak just enough Korean to be able to confirm you know, who they are and what they do, then you're going to bring in a professional Korean speaker to tap their phone. And you're going to, you're going to have a professional uh, technical operation that, that targets their computer. And you're going to have like a team of linguists who are way more proficient at Korean than you are, who are going to do the work from there. That's how you find your target. That's how you collect the information. Your job was just to make sure that that guy sitting at the tea shop really was the North Korean general. Mm-hmm. So would actually, so in that North Korean scenario, if I were to find said scientist, so would they send then a Korean speaker to potentially bond with them to, to actually recruit them? No, they would not. Because if you think about it from the point of that Korean, that North mm. Korean, then if they were to come across a fluent Korean speaker, mm. they're going to immediately suspect that they're from South Korea. Mm, got you. And that's going to make them never want to talk to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if expensive. they meet a guy with a German accent or a guy who speaks mild Korean with a bad American accent, <laughs> they'll assume that you're American. If they, and they may stop talking to you just because you're American, but that's the perfect time that we can, you know, work with a third country service and work with a partner from somewhere else. Maybe you ask a, a Canadian who speaks French who speaks Korean with a French accent. We're like, hey, maybe you can talk to them. And, mm. you know, a North Korean general will have a conversation with someone he thinks might be French for much longer than he'll talk to somebody who he thinks might be American or British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking you probably should get a Cuban person to come along. That might help. <laughs> but anyway, that's my inner, inner sort of uh, fiction spy writer thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. No, that's fantastic. Thank you for that, Andrew. So also on your website, you've got these great little spy hacks. I don't know if you could talk just about sort of spy hacks or job interviews, because that's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So just like we were talking about with that North Korean example, mm. it's we oftentimes think of think of any conversation as the conversation is for and about us. Mm. That's human nature. If I sit down in this conversation, Chris, I'm sitting here thinking that, uh, you know, Chris is interested in me and he's talking to me because this is going to benefit me. Mm. You, on the other side of the podcast, you're thinking, Andy's talking to me. This is for my podcast. Mm. This is going to benefit my audience, mm. right? So somehow we're both in this conversation mm. thinking that the the sole purpose of the conversation is to benefit ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So the the big spy hack for job interviews is the exact same thing happens when you're in a job interview. You might be sitting there thinking, oh, this job is for me. This opportunity is for me. This is so exciting for me. You're, you're totally forgetting the fact that the interviewer is sitting there thinking the exact same thing. Do I want to hire this person? This person is someone that I'm hiring for me to make mm. my life better, to make my mm. job better, to help me make more money. Mm. So the big spy hack, the big trick is to stop thinking that the spy, that the job interview is for you and start thinking, what is it like to be in this exact same job interview on the side of the interviewer? Mm, mm. Because if you can, if you can think what the interviewer is looking for, if you can anticipate what they want, Mm. then that gives you the ability to be and say and do all the things that they want to see and hear someone say. 
Yeah, yeah. And that puts you in control of the interview. Mm, it's interesting you say that, actually, because um, some of my most successful job interviews where I've won the job is I've treated the person who's interviewing me like a colleague that I already know. Right, yeah, because for them, from their point of view, mm. they're asking themselves, what is it going to be like to work with this person every day? Mm. What is it going to mm. be like when this person makes a mistake? What is it going to be like when we have a disagreement? And if you can treat them, if you can make them feel like you already know each other, then that's one less reason they have to worry about you. But if you're if you think about the typical job interview, what does what happens in the typical job interview? Somebody sits there on a on a stool or on a chair mm. and they talk about how awesome they are and how qualified they are and how good they are at everything. And they never ask questions. They only answer questions, which means they're not in control of the interview at all, just like we talked about earlier. So it's a, it's a pretty fascinating case study when you just look at it on its own because it brings together a number of the things that we talked about today, from the four C's to the power of asking questions to this, uh, this spy hack idea of that I call perception versus perspective, which means when you take the time to think through someone else's point of view, you're gaining perspective. But when you sit there and only look at the world through your own point of view, then you're seeing it through your own perception. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, perception is a weakness. Perception is a vulnerability. But perspective is an unfair advantage. Mm, that's a very interesting point there. And it might segue nicely into my next question about um, how we counter social engineering. That's another interesting area. Yeah, so social engineering happens in a couple of different places. Mm. Uh, technically, social engineering, the, the technical term, only exists online, mm. right? So, uh, through social media or through you know, uh, an email launch or an email series like from the Nigerian guy that we were just talking about. Technically, that's social engineering. There's also when social engineering happens in real life, that's called social mechanics. Whenever a human being runs a, a con on an, an old lady with a lot of money, or when a young lady cons an old man into something, that's called social mechanics technically. Mm, mm. But the, the, same, the same concept applies. So the reason that that works is because the, the criminal is assuming that the target is only going to think of themselves first. So the criminal's thinking like the target, but the target is not thinking like the criminal. So that, you know, the the con man knows that that little old lady is nervous about protecting her income and she wants to make sure that she invests her money the right way and she wants to make sure that she protects the house because her husband passed away and he spent his whole life working to build that house and keep mm. that house alive, right? Mm. So he's he already knows what the little old lady wants. So he just comes in and tells her all the right things and does all the right stuff. And then in the end, she's conned out of a house or she's yeah, conned out yeah. of her, you know, in, into giving the guy her social security number, or her checkbook, whatever it might be. If the little old lady were to stop and think, who is this guy? Why is he talking to me? How does he know how I feel? Why is he, you know, so interested in helping me? It doesn't make any sense. Then she's going to start thinking like the criminal and she'll be able to protect herself against that that mechanical social engagement. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing what a person in a suit can get away with sometimes, you know, just because when you read about those sort of like situations with a lady getting ripped off or something, it generally starts with a man uh, dressed smartly standing at the front door. Funny how we call it being dressed smartly, mm. right? Culturally, we give a certain amount of credence to people in a suit. If you ever want to understand the psychology behind why, I'm happy to share that with you too. Man, I, I love geeking out about all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So... <laughs> So a suit, mm. right, um, in terms of human nature, when you look at somebody wearing a suit, you might, in your, in your prefrontal cortex, in the front part of your brain, what you're thinking is, this person looks good. 
This person must care about how they look, and this person must be a professional. That's your logic and reasoning speaking, right? Your, your, your frontal brain. But in your pre-mammalian brain, your mammal brain, the brain that you don't have any control over, when you see somebody in a suit, what you're actually thinking is, that suit took a lot of time and effort to put on. That suit was not easy. Mm. That suit must be uncomfortable. So when your paleomammalian brain connects with your prefrontal cortex, it makes this reasoning, uh, this conclusion that's subconscious that says, this person put a lot of effort and a lot of time because they are, they are submitting to my authority. Mm, mm. I'm sitting here in a t-shirt. They're talking to me in a suit. I put no effort into putting on my t-shirt. They put a lot of effort into putting in their suit. The person who puts more effort into a relationship is the person who's trying to impress. By definition, they are the person who is submissive to the dominant person who didn't put nearly as much effort in, right? That's why you always get dressed up before you go talk to your boss. It's why you get dressed up before you take your your spouse out for a date. You want them to feel special. You want them to feel like they are, you know, the the king or queen of the world. And you are submitting to their authority by putting yourself through all this effort to put on this nice suit, this nice tie. When women put on their makeup, when women do their hair, it's all cultural. It's a cultural demonstration of, I need to look my best so that this other person feels like they deserve the best. So that's what ends up happening. So a con man always starts with a suit because right out of the gates, nobody sees the guy in the suit as the threat. They see the guy in the suit as the person who is submitting to me. And, you know, you'll hear lots of people say, I don't trust anybody in a suit. Never trust anybody in a suit. (laughs) That's only because they have learned through time and experience not to trust a suit because Mm. originally they trusted a suit. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. While you explain that, actually, I was just thinking of, um, do you remember the film The Social Network about Mark Zuckerberg? And there's this sequence where the Justin Timberlake character kind of tells him to go into this office, but in your dressing gown, like you don't give a shit kind of thing. Um, And it's almost like a reverse of what you're saying. And it's quite interesting (laughs) because he's sort of trying to show that I'm the guy who who you should be bound down to me almost, isn't it? You know, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's that whole idea of negging, right? You've heard yeah. that come up in uh, in pop culture too, where you've got to you've got to be negative to make other people feel bad about themselves to make you feel better, right? Walking around, walking through your office in a in your pajamas with a cup of coffee, that just that makes everybody else feel bad about themselves because they're like, "Who's this jerk? How do I get to be that powerful? How do yeah. I get to be that? I must be nothing compared to that guy." Mm, mm, no, it's very interesting, that, isn't it? It's very interesting. <laughs> I also have a chat with you about your podcast as well, because your your podcast's been going for how long has it been going for now? Your podcast? Oh, it's three years. Three, three years, years old now. Yeah, yeah. So my podcast is a little bit different than your typical podcast, and I'm I'm very blessed to have a podcast that consistently performs in the iTunes top 100. I'm in the top one percent of all global podcasts, and my podcast is called the Everyday Espionage Podcast. So I I basically take one spy lesson, one spy nugget that's actionable or that you can do something with right now, Mm, right? mm. One spy piece of wisdom. And then I teach it on each episode. So my episodes are all short. They're only 12 to 20 minutes, maybe. Um, Just enough time to give somebody a story, an example, a nugget of of skill, and then how to to use it in everyday life. Um, And that's that's my recipe. That's my secret recipe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You've just kindly shared. (laughs) Yeah. But it makes it so much easier. 
easier. I've had a yeah. few kind of one-off episodes. I've I've had peers, CIA and DIA and uh, even ACES. I've had peers who have come out and done interviews with me where mm. I get to ask them spy questions about their everyday life. But by and large, yeah, I'm just trying to just teach, just give knowledge on every episode that people mm. can use to get ahead in everyday life. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But there was a really interesting one about leadership you mentioned because you talk about you're identifying builders and runners. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that because I found it really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's this, we were talking about it a, a bit earlier, mm. right? There's a lot of pressure out there that says that if you're going to be a professional, you have to be a leader. And then there's all these schools and all these trainers that tell you how to be a leader. Yeah. And there's yeah. only one way to be a leader, according to them, right? You have to network and you have to be good with emotional IQ and you have to do all these things and you have to be able to multitask and you have to be able to whatever, make the perfect latte. I don't know. But they try to sell you that there's only one way to be a leader. At CIA, we're taught that there's multiple different types of leaders that are needed to run an operation. And the two main categories are called builders and runners. Builders are all those people who want to solve a problem by building something new, right? So uh, you want a new recipe for a new kind of cake, or you want to fix your car a new way, or maybe it's the first time that you're doing something yourself. So you want to figure out how it works, right? So that's a builder. A builder wants to solve a problem by doing something new, building something new. Well, then you also have runners, Runners are people who want to just do the thing that works over and over again because they know it works. So CIA is like CIA is is invested in growing both. Everybody's wired to be a builder or a runner in mm. their core being. Do they want to fix it by doing something new and novel or do they want to fix it by going and finding the one thing that always works and just doing the one thing that always works? When you put a builder and a runner on the same team, what you end up having is a team that that works very very well because every time there's a problem, the runner tries to fix the problem with a tool or a solution that has worked in the past. Meanwhile, the builder tries to solve the same problem by building something new. Anytime the builder creates something that works better than what the runner has already found, the runner automatically just starts doing the new thing that the builder built, right? So you can see how over time, the builder builds something new, it works better than before, the runner adopts immediately to the new thing. The builder then goes on to build something newer and better yet. And all of a sudden you have just you know, years of evolution that can be compressed into a very short period of time because the builder only has to build. He never has to do the same thing twice. The runner, on the other hand, always does the same thing that works over and over again, consistently, reliably. So there's always a solution, but the, the runner will never come up with the better solution. They'll just come up with the working solution. So this, this idea of builders and runners is a super powerful tag team effort at CIA. Uh, and it breaks my heart when I see how you know, LinkedIn or the New York Times 100 bestseller list. All those leadership books are talking about the same thing. They're trying to force everybody to be the same one thing mm. instead of recognizing that we all have different strengths. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, I know, like with my own sort of um, filmmaking and stuff like that, the more I delegate, um, the better projects go. Because <laughs> in the past, you always sort of like try to be the super efficient person, could do everything. But, but you kind of realize in time that's not really a useful skill at all, actually. And it's and it, and everything ends up being a bit half baked. It's better if you know what you're good at, and then you're good at inspiring the person who's good at something else to to kind of get the best out of them. And that that's been so helpful doing that. Yeah, exactly. You're a you're a filmmaker. You're a creative by definition, Chris. You're a builder. Mm. 
You build things that didn't previously exist. Mm. So for all of that post-edit and all of the music and for all of the, you know, titling and the screens and the color balancing and the audio balancing, you need to give that to somebody else Yeah, who yeah. knows how to do the same thing over and over again. Always makes it sound good. Always makes the colors look good. Always makes the lighting perfect, right? Like mm. let the runner, let the runner run. Let the builder build. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's such a useful thing. There was one other really interesting episode you had about avoiding being overwhelmed because it's something I certainly with like bags of information or, or you're in a situation where you're nervous, it's very easy to kind of get overwhelmed, especially in high stress situations. So what CIA kind of tricks are there that you could uh, impart today that can help us from getting overwhelmed? Yeah. So one of those, one of those secrets that nobody knows about that's really quite boring <laughs> is that, <laughs> is that one of the things that CIA likes to hire is they like hiring people who have anxiety, people who have a history of anxiety and depression, mm. because those are naturally suspicious people. Those are people who are, have a built-in sense of distrust for the world around them. Yeah. So they that makes them very loyal. When you win their trust, they're extremely loyal to you, which is what CIA wants. But they also don't ever trust anything to be easy. They don't ever trust anything to be what it appears to be on the surface. So because they hire actively for people that have anxiety or depression, they also actively train us how to cope with anxiety and with frustration, with overwhelm. And the big tool that they give us for how to avoid overwhelm is to understand that there's always a next step. And all you have to do is be focused on the next step. Don't be focused on the last step, just like we were talking about with that car drive from yeah, LA to New York, yeah, yeah. right? Just be focused on the next step. And if even the next step seems like it's too much, then what are the two things that are even smaller than the next step that you can do that will get you, you know, make you productive or get you positively going in the direction of the next step. Um, and what ends up happening is you just start focusing on what is the simple next solution. You're never focused on the big, challenging, hard solution. You're just focused on what is the, how do I make myself 10% better right mm. now? Mm. Uh, and 10% is not that, not a whole lot, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's just instead of eating a chocolate bar, you eat an orange. And if that's too big, then maybe what you do is you just don't eat the chocolate bar and wait five minutes before you choose what you do eat, right? Little things like that become extremely, extremely powerful at combating the sense of overwhelm because overwhelm happens when you feel like there's so much information, so many, so many high stakes that are pressing on you right in that moment that you have to solve for right away when in reality it's not that way at all and if you give yourself just a few minutes or if you mm. give yourself a small interim decision instead mm. of the big decision mm. then uh, you'll be able to to see through that noise see through that false sense of overwhelm yeah no thank you for that i'm i'm sure there's a really great sort of uh, cia inspired self-help book out there waiting to be written so you know i think that's, <laughs> it's, it, that's a very useful to know that i didn't know that the cia tend to recruit people who are anxious i find that really fascinating yeah if you if you walk down the hallways of cia you'll be shocked what you'd what you'd find it's not it's not a bunch of people like daniel craig who are gorgeous and it's not a bunch of uh, uh sydney bristows who mm. are you know mm. thin and perfect uh, instead, it's quite a lot of people that look just like whoever you run into in your office building because spying requires all kinds of people. It requires people who have anxiety. It requires people who have autism. It requires people who 
who are insomniacs mm. and people who are, you know, addicted to booze. It requires all sorts of different types of people to do the kind of work that we do. So, uh, yeah, Hollywood hasn't captured, hasn't caught onto that yet. Um, no. If they ever do, it's going to make a hell of a film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it will do. I was just wondering, actually, like um, whether uh, whether there are any sort of secret restrictions on caffeine at the CIA building because that tends to agitate people who are anxious. <laughs> do people think yeah. they're buying a caffeinated coffee and it's actually decaf? <laughs> So it's funny, there's there's not there's nothing that prevents us from using caffeine, but yeah. there is what ends up happening is your long-term CIA folks start to realize that tea is a better solution than coffee. Interesting. Yeah. Because it has yeah, a lower level of caffeine and the caffeine lasts for a longer period of time. So, you know, Asian cultures and British culture mm, mm. has known that for a long time. So what ends up happening is you just see all the you see all the amateurs at CIA drinking coffee and all the pros <laughs> drinking tea. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Any particular favorite teas the pros drink? Or <laughs> like Earl Grey or something? <laughs> yeah. You see a lot of Irish breakfast. Yeah. You see a lot of English breakfast. Uh, you see those heavy, those heavy dark, uh, heavy um, black teas. But then you also see a, a fair bit of your red teas uh, mm. from Africa and from Asia because people know that they want to keep drinking tea all day, but they need less caffeine or no caffeine. So they'll wean themselves off of caffeine in the afternoon, mm. but still be able to have the social satisfaction of walking around with their mm. cup of tea. Mm. Oh, excellent. Oh, that's really good to know. I'll remember that for my next uh, spy film, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I did get it right in mind because they were drinking tea in my film. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. But, <laughs> but there we go. Um, before we, we wrap up, you had an interesting episode about Ukraine and you were talking about sort of how artificial boundaries are getting in the way sometimes of helping people. Um and I was wondering if you could just chat with us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So everything in Ukraine is, we have to understand that it's all hidden. Mm. So the narrative that you read about in the headlines is a narrative that's determined by the West, by English-speaking press and English-speaking leadership. So you can't trust anything that you're hearing when it comes to how many troops have died and Russian problems and whether Putin's going to be, you know, ousted by his own oligarchs. Mm -hmm. All of that is a narrative that's very controlled. You can't trust it. And a big part of the reason it's being controlled is because they know that Russia hasn't closed off internet yet. And even as it has decided whether or not to close off internet, there's still a lot of Russian users who are on VPN. So in order to control how the Russians feel about this conflict, they have to make sure that the Western narrative is very consistent to demoralize the Russian people. It's a giant bit of information warfare, and they've taken the book straight out of Putin's Putin's own journal, right? Mm. This is what he does all the time. Yeah. So that's important for all of us to understand. Now, that's one barrier that prevents the average person from actually understanding what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Mm. Mm. Then there's all sorts of other barriers that get in the way, too. So as an example, um, supply and demand become, you know, everybody knows how supply and demand works from Economics 101. But there's the same. The sad news is that it also applies in a humanitarian crisis. So, with more children and women and civilians who need, you know, medical tape and gauze and hydrogen peroxide, that's going to drive the price of those goods up. And in a humanitarian crisis, when you only have a few nonprofits who are able to ship large amounts of medical supplies mm. over to Europe, their cost goes up. So you've got the cost of the goods that goes up, the cost of the shipping that goes up, the warehouses that hold those goods, supply and demand means that their price goes up. So it's really sad, but you know the millions of dollars that get poured into 
the tens of millions of dollars that get poured into humanitarian aid oftentimes are overspent on goods that are more expensive than they need to be just because of things like supply and demand and things like like restrictions on logistics and you know various other problems which results in very little care and very little humanitarian aid actually getting delivered to the people who need it and that's a scenario that nobody likes to talk about nobody likes to admit but you know in, in my work with my partners on the ground in Ukraine Poland and Romania you know it's been a very a very difficult situation to uh to navigate and to explain not just to the people who need the humanitarian aid but also to the people who are making the donations and the the nonprofits who are functioning you know it's uh, they don't like it doesn't make sense why the first week they were in Ukraine you know $20,000 got them a certain amount of goods and now 6 weeks into Ukraine $20,000 gets them half as much as it used yeah. to buy them yeah, it's yeah. a very hard scenario yeah, and your partner, is that the Mountain Seed Foundation, is that right? Correct, yeah. 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 So one of my close partners in Ukraine is the Mountain Seed Foundation, fantastic nonprofit that's actually inside Ukraine and has been inside Ukraine since before the war. Mm. Um, and they're dedicated primarily to helping displaced families and displaced orphans find safe haven outside yeah. of war zones. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant work. That's brilliant work. And you also mentioned there's a risk to Moldova as well. Is that still the case, do you think? Or? Yeah, so by and large, on the private intelligence side of the world. So I still keep one foot in private intel and I'll still support national security intelligence with a contract periodically. But in the private intel world, we're all very aware that Moldova has a strong pro-Russian faction. And the, the general consensus is that if the Russians can get past Odessa and connect the southern land border all the way to Moldova, then the Russian-backed government in Moldova will simply just acquiesce and then, you know, fall and become a Russian sympathizer. They would still be an independent country. They'd still be called Moldova, but essentially they would become predominantly like Belarus. They would just they would essentially be Russian controlled. Right now they have just enough of a of a like a peaceful government that the Russian sympathizers and the pro-Moldova sympathizers mm. they mm. get along. It's not like mm. in Ukraine where there was always conflict. They get along quite well. But as soon as the Russian military makes it to the Moldova border, then Moldova would most likely become another version of Belarus, a sympathizer to the Russians with a shadow government that's really Russian in place. Um, and that would just become yet another Russian border threatening Ukraine. Yeah. And is that, I suppose, because of its position as well, is it strategically useful for Russia for that to be on their side, so to speak? Yeah, it's yet another border, another another country that prevents mm. NATO from being on the Russian border. And then the the big thing is the is the sea, the sea to the south of Ukraine. That's that's a critical juncture for supplies and uh, and resources to make it into Ukraine. Whoever controls the sea controls Ukraine's future. And that's why you see Russia taking such active measures in Crimea and to control the southern border of Ukraine, because they know that if they control the ports at Moripol and, and Odessa, mm. then they will basically control all the flow of goods into and out of Ukraine. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts you wish to share on the Ukraine situation? Do you have any thoughts or insights on how it might end up or anything like that? Yeah, I think that uh, unfortunately, the the narrative that's coming from the West is not complete. It's not complete and it's not accurate. Mm. There's been this disaster conflict between Russia and Ukraine, active in Ukraine since 2014. In many, in many instances, you could argue that it was even before 2014. But Ukrainians have been dying in Ukraine at, because of Russians for a long time. And Russians have been dying in Ukraine for a long time. So 
this isn't a new conflict. And it's very frustrating to me that it's being portrayed as some, you know, unjust, unexpected, un unwarranted invasion. Um, in fact, Putin has been saying he's going to do this for a very long time. So it was never, it was never unannounced. It was never surprising. You know, Ukraine is a sovereign state. Absolutely. But, uh, but there's a difference between a sovereign state that has equal rights to join NATO and equal rights to become allies with anyone who wants to ally with. And the very real fact that Ukraine has been rejected from NATO, denied, because even NATO and the West know that they can't treat Ukraine like a truly sovereign nation. They have to treat it like it's essentially, you know, a Russian annex yet to happen. So it's, it's just, it's twisted, it's unfair that we paint Ukraine to be heroes when they're, when they're just being ignored and they're being rejected by everybody. Um, and the narrative is in the West's best interest to make them sound like they're these victims and these mm. brave heroes mm. that are outnumbered, mm. these mm. underdogs, mm. when they have no reason they have to be underdogs. Um, it's just, it's part of politics. It's part of the international change in power, because the truth is that everybody's a little bit afraid of Russia and everybody's quite afraid of Putin mm. because he is the most experienced wartime president on the planet right now. He's he's a threat because he has got the most wartime experience compared to any other national leader out there. Mm. He's been in power since what, 2000 with a, a slight interlude as prime minister at some point, but yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and he's participated in conflicts in Syria and he's participated in conflicts in Chechnya and he's participated in the first annex of Crimea. He, and he wins, right? Mm. He finds mm. a way to win. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we, we are a very different country in the United States and the UK and Canada and we've we've been figuring out how we want to handle the future mm. where Russia has been a very strong, you know, uh, offensive minded yeah. nationalist country for a long time. Yeah, yeah, well crudely speaking the West tends to lose interest after a while, doesn't it? And you, you it's like with Afghanistan and the pullout and things like that. So it, I mean obviously it was 20 years but still with you look at it compared to like the um situation with Korea and how American troops are still in Korea. Yeah. You could have seen that could have stayed that way of Afghanistan, you know, arguably good or bad, but we pulled out. Well people have already forgotten what happened in Hong Kong in just 2019, right? Like mm. it's just we have a Western minds are very short. We live, um, we call them first world problems. That's what we call them at CIA. The first world gets distracted by first world problems. What am mm. I going to watch tonight? Mm. Why is Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday? Like we, we have all of these ridiculous issues that have no rhyme or reason in terms of the, you know, the state of the world, but they become very important to us. Yeah. And as a result of that, we become quite blinded to long-term protracted conflict, which mm. is what Ukraine has always been and what Ukraine will continue to be. There's no peace for Ukraine, Ukraine, not for the next two to three years at least. Mm. Mm. That's very sad. Well, Andrew, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up today? No, man, Chris, this has been great. Thank yeah, you very thank much you. for a great conversation. And for sure, if, if folks want to find me, they can find me at my podcast, the Everyday Espionage Podcast, or they can find me on everydayspy.com. And of course, uh, on any social media platform at Everyday Spy, it's all about uh, anywhere I can teach a, a one spy tactic or one spy tool. That's what I'm here to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 